Good morning from downtown Denver. My name is Matt Hand, pastor of Grace City Church. And Lord willing, we're making some plans where this might be the last week that we do this kind of format for a while, where hopefully we'll be downstairs starting next week with some of you also live streaming the service here. If you're not able to join us in person comfortably or safely, we want to have options available for you so that we're loving you well, serving you well, um, continuing to bring you into the worship of the church gathered as best as we can during this time. But we're back in Colossians chapter 1 this morning. Just started a new series last week entitled Complete in Christ. And we're looking at how the gospel, particularly the person and the work of Jesus, Paul is saying to an early church, is everything you need for life and godliness. And this morning, we're off and running, starting in verse 15. So I invite you to be turning and joining me there. One of the popular criticisms that's often brought against Christianity is that people will say something like this. You Christians believe in myths and fairy tales. You believe in a God that you can't even see. And often that's paired with the claim of something like this, I only believe in science. You know, and the implication is, you, you believe pie-in-the-sky stuff that's not true, I just believe the facts. But reality isn't quite that binary, is it? It's not quite that simple, it's not black and white. The reality is, every single person believes certain things that cannot be proven to him or her. For example, the origins of the universe, let alone where human life came from, is not something that we can go back with science and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt, let alone test and replicate. You believe you came from somewhere, but that cannot be proven to you, right? How about right and wrong? You know, everyone out there believes that certain actions, certain words, certain types of thought are moral or immoral. They're right or wrong, but that cannot be proven to you factually or scientifically. Uh, what about the idea of the purpose of your life on this earth? Science can't tell you why you should be living or what you should ultimately be living for. Science certainly can't tell you about destiny. Like, is there an eternal soul that outlives this body? Is there a recreated body? And the facts, the scientific, empirical type of research that we can do does not give us a conclusive answer to those questions. So every single person I'm talking to, you accept certain things by faith. It's not like one group over here is making this colossal leap of faith, and they're called Christians, and then everybody else just lives by the facts. We all live by faith. We all worship something by faith. So a question I'm coming to is not whether you have faith or not. It is really how well have you thought through the, the level of confidence you give to your own beliefs? Do you doubt your doubts? Do you have questions about the things that you believe? Why do you have security in the, the person or the thing that you ultimately put hope in or the thing we might even say that you worship? See, I, I want to know questions that a lot of people are not giving deliberate thought to. I want to know answers to these questions. Like, if I'm going to worship a God, what is the character of that God? You know, what, what kind of power and authority does he have to do anything for me or, or she or it, right? Um, what, what kind of love 
what kind of affection, what kind of concern does that God have for me in return? Like if I'm gonna serve you, if I'm gonna give you my life, if I'm gonna trust in you and hope in you, can you change stuff about my life and do you actually care? And how would I really know any of these things? See, a, a great big God of our culture, really, and we don't talk about it this way, but a great big thing that our culture worships today is simply politics. And so many people don't just use politics like expediently. They put their hopes and their fears and their dreams are just sunk deep into politics and political ideology in a particular party. They make politics ultimate. They trust in their particular politics to be the savior, right? To come riding in on the white horse and to fix everything that's wrong with society. And your politicians and your ideas are supposed to do that. We serve politics with an almost religious fervor and we see our society literally persecuting people with a different set of ideas, with a different politic. But how many of those people have run through these questions? Like, what is the character of the people and the ideas I believe in? Does that thing have actual power? Does that thing care about me? Can that thing ultimately deliver me in the end? That brings us this morning to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, whereas the Apostle Paul is speaking to an early church. He's like, I'm not just telling you believe in Jesus. Why? Why, Paul? Well, just take my word for it. I saw him. I met him. Now, he's going to say... Here are the ultimate questions you can be asking that Jesus answers to tell you, like, here's who I am. Here's what authority I have. Here's what level of concern and love I have for you. So let's go. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says, He, Jesus, in the context he's talking about Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him, or literally in him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. And I'm, I'm thrilled to bring this passage to you and unpack this passage with you because as Paul is saying, remember early church, you are complete in Christ. You need Jesus plus nothing to have a right relationship with God, to have peace with God, to have purpose for your life, to walk in love, to walk in faith, to walk in hope. You don't need a pantheon of, pantheon of gods. You just need the one true God. And who is that? Well, Jesus. Well, why do you say it's Jesus? 
And here he goes, three things. He says, because let me show you the supremacy of Christ. Let me show you the sacrifice of Christ. And let me show you the security of Christ. Okay, let's go, off and running. Number one, the supremacy of Christ. And if someone were to ask you why you believe exclusively in the person of Jesus Christ, I can think of no better text I would come to than Colossians chapter one right here. If someone says, hey, all these different cultures have all these different gods, who's to say, right? Who's to say that you landed on the one right God? And sometimes people are, uh, they're, they're upset by that exclusive claim that Jesus is not a God among gods. He is preeminent. He is supreme. He is alone. And I take them here to this text and show them Number one, the supremacy of Christ. And Paul shows us this three ways, by the way. First of all, he shows us that Christ is preeminent in his character. You know, I use character not just to mean like his moral character, but I mean his essence, his nature, his character. Verse 15 says he is the image of the invisible God. And, and that word image or icon can, can be like a, a portrait a representation. You know, today, like I love taking a lot of pictures with my family because then at the end of each year, go back and I put together this collage. Like I pick 28 of my favorite pictures of the kids and I put it together in this collage for Marty for Mother's Day. And it's so fun, right, to go back to, you know, here's the one from 2014 and 15 and 16 and, you know, 2020 this year we'll have one. And, and to look at those little snapshots of our kids at very diff various different ages doing all these different fun things that God has blessed us to enjoy as a family. Now, as I'm looking at those pictures on the wall, I I'm not sitting there thinking, wow, that is literally Micah or Miles or Madison, right? But, but it's an accurate representation of them. Or another way to think of this is an image in that day was like looking in the mirror. And you would, you would point to that image in the mirror and say, you know, is that me? No, but it's an accurate representation of me. And at the very least, we see that Paul is saying, Jesus is that. For, for this God that you cannot see, you're like, what is he like? You would say, at the very least, knowing verse 15, he says, I've revealed to you, I've given you a snapshot, I've given you a picture of what that God looks like. But is that all? No, because look down at verse 19, adds a very important point. It says, going on here, for in him, that is in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So what Paul is telling us is Jesus is not just simply a snapshot or like a static picture of the real thing. He's saying also in him, the entire fullness, it's the word pleroma, which was a favorite word of the Gnostics, who were starting to kind of gain traction around this time period, around this place. And the Gnostics would say, oh, the Pleroma is like the, the totality of God's essence and power. And the Gnostics believed that out of that Pleroma came this Jesus who then mediated a right relationship with God, but was not God. And Paul's, Paul's using one of their favorite words, fullness, Pleroma. And he's saying, no, Jesus didn't emanate from the fullness of God. Jesus is the fullness of God. All the fullness of the divine has eternally been present in Jesus, the eternal son of the father, full of grace and truth, okay? So Paul is commandeering their word and saying Jesus is the fullness of God. 
And by the way, that's not just a, a naked claim. Jesus came to this earth and for 33 years, and especially the last three years of his ministry, he did these miracles and he demonstrated by healing the sick, by overcoming disease, by commanding nature itself, by rising from the dead. He's demonstrating, he's proving his divine presence, his divine essence, his divine character and authority. So Jesus is preeminent in character. Secondly, we see here that Jesus is also preeminent in creation. First of all, Paul says of Jesus in verse 15, he says he is the firstborn of creation. And we hear firstborn, and we're like, okay, so, so he was the first thing that God made, right? Well, that word can mean that, like the firstborn is the first child, the first child that was made of that family, right? But the, the Greeks in this culture often use the word firstborn very differently. That the firstborn, obviously because, especially the firstborn male, would receive supremacy of the family, basically. He would receive the honor and the dignity. He would receive the inheritance. He was preeminent in the family. So this word firstborn came to be, you know, metaphorically used as the one who is supreme. And that's how Paul is using it here. He's saying the one who is supreme over creation. And, and that's what Paul's saying here, because as he goes on, you see he's saying he's preeminent over creation. Why? Well, because he's the source of everything else. He was before all things, and now he is the source of all things. All things came about, and Paul says, literally in him, through him, and for him. And I hear three important things here. First of all, he's saying Jesus, Jesus exists eternally, outside of the physical creation that we see. That's very important. But then he's saying, number two, Jesus is the source of everything else that exists. One commentator puts it this way. Dick Lucas says, whatever aspect of creation we care to think about, Christ is the sufficient explanation. So if you're thinking about angels and demons, you know, kind of the unseen supernatural, Christ is the sufficient explanation. He is the source if you're thinking about, wow, we're this one tiny blip in one you know, Milky Way universe, and, but we're one of hundreds of millions or however many are out there, what, what is all of that about? Christ is the sufficient explanation. But I think even more than that, it's interesting, Paul says Jesus is not only the source of creation, he is also the telos, he is the end, he is the goal, he is the purpose. In other words, everything finds its ultimate meaning only in relation to Jesus, to Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not arguing here about the mechanics of creation, okay? I'm not, I'm not going back to Genesis and saying, you know, you must believe those are six literal 24-hour days versus you know, periods of time or just a, a poem to help us understand the structure. You know, I'm, Paul's not sitting here wrestling through, hey, you need to believe in a world that's only 6,000 or 10,000 years old versus a million or... 4.5 billion. I'm, I'm not arguing here for the mechanics of it. What I'm saying is, as you look around at everything that is, both the seen and the unseen, Jesus is the source. Jesus is the end. Jesus is the goal of all of that. And Paul says something else important here about Jesus' relationship to science, to the world, to, to matter, because he says not only did Jesus fashion everything from the beginning, but he also actively holds it together, verse 17. 
He says, Jesus is not the God of the deist, the great clock winder, you know, who, who made it all in the beginning, who wound it up and then sets it aside, and he walks away and just kind of wipes his hand and says, now the universe runs by my law. He, Paul actually says the opposite. He says he sustains the universe. He, he holds it together. Hebrews 1 verse 3 puts it this way. He sustains the universe by the world, word of his power. And I want you to just think about two illustrations from the material world real quick with me. The, the planets, number one. You know, why is it that the earth just keeps going around and around and around the sun? Because there, there are some scientific laws that if you understand, you would think, you know, if one thing were just slightly off, wouldn't we be pulled into the sun and we would just burn up? And the answer is yes. And if some things change slightly the other way, wouldn't we just fly off and freeze and be gone? And the answer is yes. But Jesus is asserting, I'm holding this all together. And, and the mass of the earth and the gravitational pull of the sun and your distance and the speed at which you travel does just exactly the right thing so that instead of pulling into the sun and being burned up and flying away from the sun and freezing, you have this thing called an orbit. And you're at just the right speed to keep going around and around and around and give you seasons and give you hot and cold. And sometimes it's very hot like this weekend and sometimes it's very cold, but not deadly so, right? For the most part, Jesus is doing that. Let me give you another illustration real quick and I'll draw this one for you. So carbon 12, which is one of the common elements of our universe, is something like this. In the middle of an atom, you have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, and you have one, two, three, four, five, you know, six of those are what are called protons, right? You learned about this in science. They're positively charged particles, and you have six neutrons. And then outside of that, you have two electrons traveling in this ring, and you have four more traveling in this ring. So quick question for you, because all of the universe is basically made up of atoms and atomic particles, and you understand science. So why is it that these electrons with their negative charge do not just immediately get sucked into the protons and poof, you know, there goes that atom? Well, they're, they're traveling at just the right speed, at just the right distance, that they are not being pulled in, much like a miniature, minuscule version of our solar system. Why also is it that these protons, if they're all positively charged and they're packed in together, why is it that they are not being blown apart? Because you understand electromagnetism. Why is it that positive things can hang together? And scientists will say it's called the strong nuclear force, right? The most powerful force in the universe so it's only effective over teeny tiny little distances. Strong nuclear force. What is it? We don't know. Okay. Uh, would you rather believe that some impersonal cosmic force that's operating randomly by chance has no, no love for you, no concern for you, has just somehow magically did this stuff over billions and billions of years? Or that when Jesus Christ says, I am preeminent because I literally hold everything together. Every single atom obeys my command to travel at this distance and to hang together because of this thing that we describe by a strong nuclear force or a gravitational force. 
I mean, it's, it's fascinating stuff. Christianity is not at odds with science. It just gives you a different explanation for the universe that we see. So, Paul's point here is Jesus Christ is preeminent in his character. He's preeminent in creation. Thirdly, in verse 18, he's also preeminent in the church. He is the head of the body of the church, the head. And here Paul is not so much focused about the body and the interrelationship of different parts of the body. He talks about that elsewhere, 1 Corinthians, for example. Here he's saying Jesus Christ is the head. And the head is more than just direction, thought, guidance. It is that. But the, the head is life. It's health. It's peace, right? You, you take my head from me and I'm instantly a goner. There is no life. And that's what he's saying here. Why, why does Jesus get preeminence in the church? Well, because he's the head. He's the one who can give it life. Well, how do we know that? Well, he uses another term here, verse 18. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Why is Jesus Christ the head of our faith and not Abraham or Moses or David or Peter or Paul or, or, or Muhammad or Buddha for that matter? And the answer is here. He's the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. As we used that term firstborn earlier, Jesus Christ was not literally the first person to ever rise from the dead. You know, chronologically, Jesus raised people from the dead before he died and rose again, right? But it's saying he's the supreme one. He's the preeminent one because he is the one who holds the power of life over death itself. And what's interesting here is he uses this term, he's the beginning. What does that mean? Well, I, I used to think Paul was almost like arguing from the greater to the smaller. Like, Paul, why would you go from like, Jesus is preeminent over the whole universe, every created thing, and also preeminent over the church, which is like this tiny subset. But, but that's not what he's doing. So when he says Jesus conquered death, he is the firstborn, the preeminent one over death, of resurrection, of new life. He's the beginning, the beginning of what? Paul is saying here, as he said, and he really unpacks this other places, he is the beginning of a new creation. Jesus is the beginning of a new creation. He is sovereign. He is preeminent over a new creation where there is no sin, where there is no punishment, where there is no death or judgment or any such thing. Jesus is preeminent. Okay, now let me move on to the next point, and these next two will go quickly. We've been talking about the supremacy of Christ. Now, the title of the sermon is The Paradox of Christ. What's the paradox? Well, the paradox is now point two, the sacrifice of Christ. Okay, because verses 20 through 22, which we read together, go on to say that, that, that this eternal God who has all authority, all cosmic power to hold together every single atom in his universe, that he took on flesh, our flesh, and he was falsely accused and he went to an untimely death, beaten to a pulp and nailed to a Roman cross, bleeding and dying to reconcile us to himself. Okay, does this shock you now in context? Does it stun you? First of all, does it shock you that Paul says we were alienated, we were estranged, we were hostile to God? Because some of you may say, oh, before I was a Christian, I, I didn't feel any hostility. I wasn't like angry at him, I just didn't know about him. Or someone may even be thinking that now. Like, I, I don't believe what you're saying, but I'm not, I'm not hostile to God. So maybe that stuns you. Well, w whatever outrage you have over 
the fact that the Bible says your sin is so serious, it drove a wedge between you and God so that you were enemies who needed some form of reconciliation. Whatever your outrage over that, I invite you to also be stunned with what the scripture says next, which is that the eternal God responsible for creating and sustaining the universe by just his words, that he took on flesh, lived 33 years, and went to a violent and bloody death to make it possible for you to come back, to make it possible for your sins to be washed away, for your slate to be made clean so that there was no longer that sin that you and I committed standing between us and a holy God. See, this is what I'm saying when I mention the sacrifice of Jesus. He did everything necessary to reconcile estranged parties and to bring them back together in fellowship and in friendship, in joy and in blessing. That's what Jesus did for you. Okay? Now, the ancients listened to this, and the, the Gnostics and the people who were trending that way, their shock would have been like, wait, wait, God took on flesh? That's impossible, see, because they had this duality of like spirit, good, body, flesh, bad. And, and God's saying, no, body, flesh, not bad. Now, now, you've made it bad by sin, and the curse has affected that. But I've come to restore not just souls and minds and spirits, but to renew all things, to reconcile all things to myself, including this physical universe, including the physical fleshly life and body. So whatever your shock is, this is the assertion of Scripture that God, who possesses all power and all authority, the uncreated creator, loves not just broken people. We love to use that term today, don't we? Broken. He loves broken people. You know what else he loves? He loves sinful, rebellious people who by our own choice have said, I'm going to do my own thing at least for a season. If I want you, I'll come back. I think I know where to find you. And he pursued you at the cost of his own life. And this is what the paradox is, that the supreme, the preeminent, would also be the sacrificial savior. You see the paradox? Sovereign Lord, Supreme Lord, but suffering, sacrificial servant and Savior. And that brings us to the final point, which is the security of Christ, verse 23. And in verse 23, he says this. He says, you know, I'm talking to you about this reconciliation. I'm talking about how he made you holy and blameless and above reproach. He did that for you. You can't do it for yourself. He did it for you. Just receive it as a gift. Receive it by faith. Just say, Lord, thank you for your grace. I receive it. But, but then he goes on and says something odd. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. And now it sounds like Paul has suddenly transitioned. He says, okay, it's all up to God. He's done it for you. Uh, just kidding. Don't mess it up. Right? If indeed you're able to continue. In other words, maybe there's this special small percent of people who are able to continue and always be faithful to God and whatnot. But no, okay. Let's just take a moment with this final point. Paul's using the metaphor of a building. He's using the metaphor of building on a foundation. He's saying you, you want to build something that is stable and steadfast and not shifting from that foundation. What is that foundation? It's Jesus Christ and it's the gospel. Okay, here's the thing, friends. Your life is only as stable, 
Your life is only as secure, your life is only as safe as the quality of the foundation that you choose to build on. You may be meticulous about following religious rules and observances, okay? And that's good in a way. You may be meticulous about like, I wanna be a good person, right? A kind person, I wanna be loving. And that's good, that's not bad, but it's it's like erecting this beautiful, well put together structure on quicksand. And your whole thing will come crumbling down, not just because you were doing the wrong things. In many instances, you're doing a lot of the right things, but you were built on the wrong foundation. And Paul's using a metaphor here of like, let's, let's make sure that you are diligently laboring to build on the only right salvation or the foundation, which is salvation in Jesus Christ. See, see what if I'm building my life on the foundation of Jesus Christ and I mess up? Right? I, I say things that are wrong. I do things that are wrong. I have bad thoughts. I emote in ways that are displeasing to God. Well, if I'm built on the foundation of Christ, I'm not being glib about my sin or yours. I'm not saying it just poof goes away. It's magic. Don't worry about it. But I'm saying if your life is built on the foundation of Christ, of course you are a mix of righteousness and unrighteousness. But you are grounded there by your faith. And I think what Paul is actually saying is Jesus, if I could you know, kind of flip the metaphor a little bit, Jesus is like the one foundation. You're not just bolted to him and hanging on for dear life. Jesus is the one foundation you can build your life on that he's like reaching up and he is upholding you. He's hanging on to you. Yeah, and even when parts of your life or your whole life is crumbling, Jesus is the foundation that you can build your life on. That's that's what he's encouraging here. He's like, recognize the supremacy of Christ. Recognize the the sacrifice of Christ. Love, hope in that incredible paradox and don't go anywhere. You know, when you sin, come running back. Say, Father, Jesus, thank you for your grace. I've, I've displeased you. I understand that, but thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for reconciling me because of what you've done and by what you've done, not by what I've done, okay? Let me close here with a little illustration. Most of us as kids, we used every little hill of dirt and rock, every little mound of grass, every, every piece of playground equipment, every piece of furniture in the house was at some time used to play King of the Hill, right? And, and, and the goal of King of the Hill is that you get yourself to the top of that mound or the top of that playground equipment or the top of that piece of furniture and everyone else is trying to assault you from all sides and you push them back and they, you know, they're pulling you down and then they are reigning supreme. They are king of the hill. And then you're, you're right back and you're tearing them down and you are reigning supreme. And then it's just, and, and I think it's a metaphor for life. I see it so much right now in our culture, king of the hill. And what we see over and over again in everyday life is that the struggle for supremacy ends in ruin. We want to sit here and fight? No, no, my politic, my politician, my idea, my morality, my football team, my whatever, my opinions, my preferences. And everybody else feels the same way. It's it's theirs, not yours. Leads Leads to ruin. So friends, what I hear Paul saying here, and I close with this, he's saying, Jesus Christ is the only one who can rule you without ruining you. Or to say it positively, Jesus Christ is the only one who can rule you and redeem you. 
you will submit to someone or something. You will believe someone or something. You will worship someone or something. And here again, Jesus Christ, the preeminent one, the supreme one, but also the sacrificial one. Jesus Christ is the only one who can rule over you, who can have authority over you, who can receive your worship without ultimately destroying you. So take away this idea, because Jesus is supreme Lord over creation, over the church, in his character, and because he is the sacrificial savior. He is our sufficient both. He is our sufficient Lord, God, King, leader, ruler. We serve you joyfully, God, and Savior. Thank you for your rescue. Now, help us to abide. Help us to plan ourselves on your foundation and no other foundation. And help us, Lord, to take a text like Colossians 1, 15 through 23 and just go shout it from the rooftops and say, friends, you're all submitting to something. Here is something, something, someone that you can submit your life to. And he will only use his power and his authority over all things to heal you, to make you whole, and to bring you home reconciled, safe, in the Father's arms forever. Let's worship this great, preeminent, unique King, Jesus.